the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is there are charges of hypocrisy in Washington, Danny. No, wait, wait, <laughs> stop the presses. <laughs> Good God, I am scandalized. Yes, so the Democrats are accusing Mitch McConnell and the Republicans of hypocrisy because they held up the nomination of Merrick Garland to replace Antonin Scalia for the Supreme Court and said that it should be decided by the voters. But now they're going to rush through a confirmation of President Trump's nominee to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is that hypocritical, Danny? Look, you know, I guess having worked on the Senate, I would say that my view of the Senate is, you know, if you have the power to do it and the people elected you to exercise that power, it's more of a dereliction of duty not to. Not only that, but I think we all know, we all know that if the shoe were on the other foot, amen, this would be exactly the same. Chuck Schumer with his pious adherence to, to precedent, which, by the way, of course, he you know, has totally done a switcheroo on because he made the exact opposite arguments. So, you know, is does everybody look a little bit two-faced? Kind of. Not just the Republicans, the Republicans Republicans and the Democrats. Republicans are doing backflips, right? right? And the Democrats are doing double backflips because under Bush— Schumer and uh, Biden. It was called the Biden rule back then, which is they said that, no, you cannot confirm uh, a Supreme Court justice during a presidential election year. But then when Barack Obama was president, we have to confirm the justice under the election year and during an election year. It's an outrageous not to do it. And now that Trump is president, we're back to the Biden rule and the Bush Precedent. So, right. well, you know, there, there's situational ethics and situational principles are very much a Washington feature. And I would say that both parties are equally sinners in that regard. The one thing that I think we have forgotten is that, you know what, a president like him, hate him, love her, hate her, is owed some respect for their choices. I, I, well, you know, but I'm sorry. This happened where Obama's folks didn't get confirmed. It's certainly happened in the Trump administration where basically nobody but judges are being confirmed. And I got to say, you know, this is a parlous road to go down. You can say on the judicial side, this started with Judge Bork mm-hmm. and it was a travesty. So, you know, I think this really is a, a pox on everybody's house. We should try to return to a more respectful way of doing business. Well, there is a lack of consistency in, this, in the uh, in what people are saying, but there's a pretty consistent history of what people have done. I mean, you know, facts matter, and the record is pretty clear that when the president and the Senate are of the same party and there's an election year nomination, the nominee almost always gets confirmed. And when the president and the Senate are of different parties, almost always, the nominee doesn't get confirmed. Right. 10 percent of you know, cases, I think that happened. And it was a very, very long time ago. You know, and, and Mitch McConnell, to his credit, you know, he said back in during Merrick Garland that that was the principle, that there hasn't been since 1888 under Grover Cleveland that the Senate had confirmed in an election year the nominee of the president of the opposite party. And so... I'm not sure how inconsistent Mitch McConnell is being. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, on the other hand, 
that we can go after everybody, but the bottom line is there's going to be a nominee, and because the filibuster is no longer in place, that nominee is almost And whose fault is that? Yes, Harry Reid. Uh, Harry Reid. So I just want to... We just had an episode on the filibuster. We know exactly... Uh, if our our faithful listeners know the history... Yes, but this is a slightly different history because, you know, why are the Democrats in this situation? They made their own bet, right? Because they removed the filibuster for all judicial nominations except for Supreme Court justices, right? They held it out and they didn't do it for Supreme Court justices. Then when Neil Gorsuch came up, they filibustered him. And if they hadn't been... For that precedent, plus the filibuster of Gorsuch, then the Republicans would not have eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. If they had not done that, Brett Kavanaugh would not be on the bench right now. And if they had not done that, there would be zero chance that Donald Trump could confirm whatever person he's picking right now. So the Democrats created this situation by breaching the norms from beginning to end and politicizing the judicial confirmation process. And so it was a stupid mistake for Harry Reid to do it. No, it was a venal mistake. Venal mistake. It was, And it was a venal mistake to filibuster Gorsuch. And there were some smart Democrats at the time who were saying, don't filibuster Gorsuch, let him through because we want to preserve that filibuster because there might be another nominee. One day there might be a Republican president. Exactly. Oh, that could never be. Exactly. And so they created this mess therein. And if they had not done that, there would be zero chance that Donald Trump could confirm somebody right now. So the one thing I want to just get off the table because it's bugged me all week since Justice Ginsburg died and before we turn to our really awesome guest is this notion that we all should have some respect for her dying wish (laughs) not to be replaced. I have just been gobsmacked at the number of otherwise sensible people who are like, but, but... It was her dying wish. Like, are we in a republic or a monarchy? And even if we were in a monarchy, would we care what her dying wish was? I wonder if Scalia's dying wish was that Roe v. Wade be overturned. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that. I wonder what, do you think Scalia wanted Barack Obama to replace him? Of course not. But, you know, the dying wish of a Supreme, but this is, quite frankly, I mean, I know we don't want to speak ill of the dead, um, but let Well, let I was about briefly, to say, but let me. <laughs> but let me briefly. I think that just shows everything that's wrong with her judicial philosophy is that the political outcome is the problem. You would think that the response would be, my dying wish is that a giant of the law would come and fill my shoes, that the the president and the Congress could work together to appoint somebody who will be a great Supreme Court justice. No, her dying wish is that the president not follow the words that she said about Merrick Garland, which is there is nothing in the Constitution. This is her speaking out and sticking her nose into the Merrick Garland fight. There's nothing in the Constitution that says the president stops being president in his last years. So she thought it was perfectly fine for Barack Obama to uh, put Merrick Garland on the bench to replace Antonin Scalia, her dear friend, who she loved but disagreed with, and that uh, she criticized the Senate for not confirming him. And now all of a sudden she wants them to do the opposite to happen because she doesn't like who controls the White House. That's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of activist, liberal, outcome-oriented judicial philosophy. And for all our faults on the right, and we have tons of them, our biggest problem is Speak that our yourself, Mark. Well, you're yeah, <laughs> to the extent you're on the right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The the one of our biggest faults is that we are awful at picking Supreme Court justices uh-huh. because our justices don't think that way. Our justices go out and do what they think is right for the law and don't start with the outcome. And so therefore half of them go south on the objectives that the right has. Their people never come over 
their justices never come over and join Scalia and the Alito, Gorsuches and the Alitos. Our people defect all the time because they actually have a judicial philosophy that says, I'm going to rule by the law regardless of what my preferred outcome is. And that is not the philosophy of the left. That was not the philosophy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And on that final rant... Now seems an appropriate moment to introduce our guest. So most of you probably know who Dan McLaughlin is. He writes for National Review Online, where he's a senior writer. I actually know him first from Twitter, where he is uh, under the handle at Baseball Crank. Former attorney, practiced uh, securities and commercial law in New York City, and he was a contributing editor at Red State, a columnist at The Federalist. He's also, and I can't leave this out, He's a baseball blogger at BaseballCrank.com and at Boston Sports Guy. You will all be happy to hear that I did not display my woeful ignorance about my favorite team in the world, the Red Sox, by talking sports. Do you know what sport they play, Danny? I, I, I believe it's <laughs> baseball, but nowadays you can't be sure of anything. Anyway, have a listen. He's awesome. Well, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. So, you know, we are now in this epic battle over the Supreme Court seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Democrats are accusing the Republicans of hypocrisy because they held up Merrick Garland in an election year, but now they're pushing through uh, Ginsburg's replacement. Mitt Romney was one of the votes in question, and he said that he looked at it and that the Constitution and the history support uh, going forward. You've written a great article on that. I think he was probably relying in some extent on your research. Tell us about the history and whether, in fact, that's true. Yeah. So really, the question here is, I mean, first of all, you know, can and should the president make a nomination in this situation? There have been 29 cases in U.S. history where there was a vacancy, an opportunity for a president to make a Supreme Court nomination either in an election year or in a lame duck session after the election. And in all 29 cases, the president has made that nomination. So from the president's end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the precedent is very clear. You always make the nomination. Almost all of those nominations were made more or less right away. I think James Buchanan was the only one who waited a long time to do it. And and, and he's not a good model. Poor, <laughs> yeah, a very poor choice. A very poor choice in Buchanan's case because the Democrats had the Senate at the time. And by the time he sent the nomination up, most of the Democratic Senate caucus had uh, seceded from the Union. And the <laughs> but anyway, so from the president's perspective, it's easy. From the Senate's perspective, what has happened? Well, in 19 of those 29 cases, the president's party controlled the Senate. And 17 out of 19, the president got his nominee through rather than letting the nomination go to the president's successor or into the next term. And of the two that didn't, one of them was a technicality, which was George Washington wanted to put a nominee on the court who had actually voted to help create the court. And the Constitution made him ineligible for that until there was a new Congress seated. So that was just a technical matter. So really, the only one of those 19 cases where the president didn't get what he wanted was in 1968 when you had the filibuster of Abe Fortas and Homer Thornberry, which was a bipartisan filibuster. And it was it was in large part successful because of major ethical issues that ended up forcing uh, Fortas off the court. So, you know, all of those cases when the president's party controlled the Senate, the president got what he wanted. Now, in the 10 cases in which the opposing party controlled the Senate, nine out of 10 of those, the president did not get what he wanted before the election. Only one of them in 1888, Chief Justice Melville Fuller was confirmed by the Republican Senate, you know, for Grover Cleveland, 
his nomination. And the other cases, a few of those, the president did finally get something after the election, but only in favor of the party that won the election. So in a couple of those cases in 1876 for uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, and in 1845 after the 1844 election for John Tyler, uh, in each case, the party in power won the presidential election, was able to get some of what it wanted, not everything, but some of what it wanted after the election. And then the, the one other example of those where the president finally got what he wanted was Dwight Eisenhower appointing William Brennan as a recess appointee in October of 1956. After the election in the new Senate, Eisenhower sent Brennan up as a you know, lifetime appointment and was confirmed by the Senate. As to why we haven't had a fight before the election, in the immediate term before the election, the simple answer is we've actually only had, in a presidential election year, in all of American history, two vacancies that opened between Labor Day and the election. Eisenhower's was one. The other was in 1864, when Roger Taney, who was the author of Dred Scott and the basically the arch nemesis of Abraham Lincoln, died in mid-October. But what happened in 1864, as in 1956, is that the Senate was out of session. No nominee could be sent up. Lincoln, I suppose, could have sent a recess appointment, but the Republicans held the Senate. He knew he could get his choice as soon as the Senate returned. And so when they returned to Washington in December, Lincoln sent up his former Treasury Secretary, Salmon P. Chase, who Lincoln was trying to get rid of anyway, uh, and get him out of, <laughs> out of Lincoln's hair and where safer to put him on the court. And Chase was confirmed the very next day. So here's my question. There's a lot of clarity about, as you say, the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and what they should do. The congressional end is a little bit more complex. And many are trying to hoist Mitch McConnell by his own petard, saying that, you know, he argued against confirming Merrick Garland because it was the latter days of a presidency and that he didn't know who was going to be next and, and wanted to, you know, respectfully allow whoever was going to be president to fill the, the seat. And now, of course, he doesn't respectfully want to allow whoever's going to be president to fill the seat. How do you assess those arguments? Well, I think if you look carefully at what McConnell said at the time in his first press conference after uh, Justice Scalia died and again in a nationally televised interview with Chris Wallace, McConnell specifically talked about the fact that this was not just because of his election, but because of an election and the two branches were divided, that Republicans had been given control of the Senate. You know, he specifically cited the example, the fact that this hadn't been done since 1888 with uh, different parties controlling the White House and the Senate. So McConnell, I think, was aware of the history and the precedents. And Grassley, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time, made several repeated references to those historical precedents as well. Now, it is absolutely true that if you look at you know, every single statement that McConnell and Grassley made, let alone any number of other Republican senators, there were a lot of people who painted with a fairly broad brush about the need to you know, take this to the voters in election year. I think Lindsey Graham in particular made some some rather uh, unfortunate statements saying, well, you know, you can come back in four years and throw these words in my face. Uh, you know. <laughs> OK, <laughs> that's happening. Those are, famous, those are famous last words in politics. Right. But the reason why you put this to the voters in election year in the first place is because there's a disagreement between the president and the Senate. You know, when you have a Republican president and a Republican Senate, there's no disagreement. There's nothing for the voters to resolve. And the reason why it matters it's an election year is, of course, 
if you have the flip side, which is you have the president and the Senate of different parties and it's not an election year, typically the president has eventually, you know, there's often been a lot of blood on the floor, but typically the president does eventually get a nominee through simply because you can't keep a seat open. At least nobody in history has tried to keep a seat open for two, three, four years at a time. Well, and McConnell would take that even further to say that in 2018, the Republican Senate got a mandate on the judicial front because this came right after the the smearing of Brett Kavanaugh in such an unbelievably disgusting fashion. And that literally the polls show that that cost at least three of the four Democrats who lost that election their seats, that that was the driving issue. And the voters gave Republicans expanded majority in 2018. And they didn't win the House, but they expanded their majority in the Senate campaigning on the Supreme Court. So McConnell's argument is that the president is president for four years. And two years ago, the voters, you know, gave us an expanded majority in the Senate precisely over this issue. Is that a fair argument? Yeah. And I think if, yeah, I think if you look at where the polls were going in the Senate races, it's very clear that there was a break in the Republican direction in a couple of those key Senate races right around the time of the Kavanaugh hearings. And yeah, when you McCaskill, Donnelly, all of them. Yeah. And when you contrast that with what happened in the House and the governor's races in that year, races where the Supreme Court could not be on the ballot and Republicans got pasted, I think you could you can, in fact, make a very strong case that at least as to the, you know, the voters who were actually voting, and I think if you look at 2014 and 2016, certainly uh, the other elections that built the current Senate majority, I think Republican voters have responded to messages about the Supreme Court for a long time. You know, everybody keeps trying to argue this on the merits. You know, well, no, here's the reason why, and here's the reason why. But isn't the the right answer that you know, if you are a Congress elected, you hold power until the next Congress takes its seat? And the president holds power until the new president is inaugurated. And if you have the power to either go forward or to derail a nomination, that's what's going to happen. I, I, I shouldn't be surprised by everybody trying to get on their principled high horse, I suppose. But I mean, isn't this a clear matter of who has the power and when? I think that's the starting point. I think you always start with the, the idea that, that if the voters have given you the power to do something, that it's sort of presumptively legitimate to do it if it's, you know, if it's the right thing to do, if it's the right thing according to your end principles of, you know, what the court should look like, how it should function. But there are norms in the Senate. There are norms in much of American government. There are sometimes reasons when you shouldn't do something that you have the power to do. And that's when you really look at the historical precedents to say, you know, is there either a well-established norm or at least some precedent that helps guide us in knowing, is this maybe some situation where we shouldn't take our power to the maximum? And I would argue here that whether or not you consider this a norm, right, and that's some of the pushback on citing this precedent is the idea that, well, maybe there aren't enough examples to consider this an established norm in the way that, you know, things that happen several times a year would be considered a norm. But I think if you start with the idea that exercising power is legitimate unless it's restrained by a norm, then the best you can say is, well, there is no norm here, but there are precedents and the precedents have divided this way. You know, whether these folks are sincere or not, look, I was a practicing lawyer for two decades. And, you know, if you're standing up in court citing precedents to a judge, the judge doesn't care 
whether you're only citing those precedents because you're trying to win the case. A precedent is a precedent. It is a historical fact. And so to be able to point to this as there is a dividing line in the history and it supports Republican position, that's true. Why shouldn't you cite it? And it absolutely does show that this is a legitimate exercise of power. You might even call it stare decisis. <laughs> well, here's a norm that seems to be on the chopping block, which is court packing. So that a lot of Democrats are saying to, uh, to the Republicans, if you do this, if you exercise your constitutional powers before the election, we're going to undo it when we come into power by packing the court and installing a liberal majority. They don't use those exact words, but that's essentially what they're saying. Is that a norm? Is there a precedent for doing that? Uh, really, there is not. I mean, first of all, the size of the court has been fixed since 1869. And I think that the prestige of the court certainly has risen quite a lot since then. And if you look at the expansions of the Supreme Court that took place before that, right, because the original court was six justices, which, first of all, the founders seem a little naive to have, have created an even number of <laughs> seats on the court. But, you know, the expansion of the court from... 1789 up until, you know, into the, it was expanded in 1807 to seven justices and in, I think, 1837 to nine justices. The reason it was expanded at that point was purely geographic, which is that justices in those days were still expected to ride circuit. You had to go out and literally visit the various circuit courts around the country. And therefore, as the country expanded, it was no longer enough to have just, you know, six justices riding from, you know, Maine to Ohio, particularly in the in the age before, you know, rail transit. So there were undoubtedly some ideological motives there. I mean, both Jefferson and Jackson, who were behind those expansions of the court, you know, had longstanding fights with Chief Justice Marshall and they they wanted to expand the court. You know, Marshall himself, by the way, was a lame duck appointee. John Adams put him on the court after Adams lost the election. So the Democrats spent a lot of years fighting with him. What's closer to a precedent there is if you look at what happened between 1863 and 1869, which I think is wrapped up in the Civil War, right? First, the court was expanded in 1863 to 10 justices, which, again, one wonders at the idea that an even number of justices was a good idea in a country that was literally in the middle of fighting a civil war. But um, <laughs> but it was it was expanded in good part because, again, you had geographic issues. Uh, the justice who was appointed at that point was Stephen Field, who was from California. Field actually, on his appointment, uh, didn't come east right away. He was handling judicial business out west, including a, a treason trial, some guys who were trying to privateer a ship in San Francisco. That's another story. But Anyway, what the Republicans did do immediately after the Civil War is the one example that looks like an actually somewhat successful example of court packing, which is that in order to deny Andrew Johnson any justices, they basically shrank the court. They passed a bill saying, you know, as justices die or resign, you know, the court will be contracted and there will be no new nominees. And that ripped Johnson's power right on, out from under him. And this was part and parcel of the same effort that went into trying to impeach Johnson for firing members of his cabinet. They were trying to essentially dismantle the presidency. And then as soon as Johnson's out of office, the Republicans pass a new bill saying, OK, we're going to bring the court back to nine. And, and President Grant is going to be able to nominate appointees. By and large, that's sort of a, a rather disreputable episode in the whole history of 
the Reconstruction Congress, obviously, it was a reaction to Johnson's Reconstruction policies, which were terrible. But, you know, ever since then, the only real court-packing attempt we've had was FDR in 1937. And at that point, FDR was coming off one of the greatest landslides in American history. He had like like a 50-vote majority in the Senate. And still, his own party and the public rebelled against it, said that this is tyrannical. It was dangerous. And that's why everybody who has gone to school ever since then, at least until they maybe stopped teaching American history. Uh, <laughs> in school, has, has the root of many history. problems. Yes. Has read in their history books what court packing is, why it was unpopular, why it was dangerous, and why even voters who loved FDR thought it was a step too far. So give us a little bit of a history lesson, because I think you hit the nail on the head. I think actually people don't learn about this. And it's no surprise that someone like AOC, who has really not (laughs) spent a lot of time with the history books, is one of the people most aggressively advocating this, along with several other younger members. What happened? How, How did the public stop the president and the Congress that was of his same party from packing the court? Well, I mean, undoubtedly, a major part of it was the fact that a significant faction of FDR's party in Congress rebelled. It was the chairman of the House Rules Committee who declared that this was, you know, a dangerous power that no man should exercise. And the newspaper press in those days was, you know, it was certainly a partisan press. It was less partisan press than today, a less partisan press by far than in the 18th or 19th century. But still fundamentally responsible enough that a lot of newspaper editorials, you know, a lot of the press coverage at the time called out FDR for how dangerous this was and that it was really tampering with the rule of law. I mean, FDR even presented it at the time as in sort of non-ideological terms, right? He claimed that he was just worried about the court's justices being too old. So it was, I forget if it was over 70 or over 75, but he was planning to add another member to the court for each one over a certain age. And so, you know, even FDR was kind of embarrassed to say exactly what he was doing, but he mostly said what he was doing. He said that, you know, that the court was standing in the way of progress and whatnot. And I think a lot of people recognize that that's Banana Republic stuff. You know, it's one thing to play hardball over who gets to fill the jobs but to just expand the number of justices for no reason other than that you don't like the outcomes that the court is giving you. It really is a a fundamental departure from the rule of law. They've been talking about this since before Ginsburg. The Senate Democrats sent a letter to the Supreme Court when they were taking up a New York gun case a year ago saying that if you take up this case, then we will have to consider reforming the Supreme Court. I mean, weren't they really planning this even before Ginsburg? Yeah, and of course they were. And and it was something that was, I mean, look, Pete Buttigieg, right? Why did Pete, there were like, what, 18, 19, 20 candidates in the Democratic field. Why did Mayor Pete from, you know, tiny town in Indiana suddenly rocket into the national attention? It was because he proposed a court packing plan. And so this is something that was ventilated in, in the Democratic primaries. Kamala Harris was for it. Elizabeth Warren was for it. I mean, to me, at least, like my view of the Democratic primaries was that, you know, this whole divide between kind of the economic moderates and the Bernie people was secondary to the issue of the people who were looking to kind of burn down the system. And so 
the candidates that alarm me the most were the court packing candidates. And, you know, to their credit, both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, having lived many a year on this earth, at least warned and recognized that if you started down the path of court packing, there was absolutely no way to stop the other party from doing the same thing. So, Dan, tell me what you think will happen if Biden is elected and a Democratic Senate with him, if, as seems almost a certitude at this point, they get rid of the filibuster, do you think they will expand the size of the Supreme Court? I think when it comes down to it, I mean, I I don't think that that's something they will want to do right away. I think the filibuster is something they will want to do right away. They will push something that Republicans will oppose, probably a voting rights bill, you know, possibly something on the environmental or health care areas, but something that they feel gives them an argumentative upper hand that they can declare, you know, this is the will of the people, maybe even a gun control bill. And then they will move from there to eliminate the filibuster. And one thing about eliminating the filibuster is you really don't need the White House. I mean, you need the president not to be loudly opposed, but, yeah, it's not something that requires a presidential signature. So a Joe Biden, there probably is not a person alive on this earth who has participated in more Senate filibusters than Joe Biden. (laughs) Uh, I don't think Joe Biden really wants to get rid of the filibuster, but I have no question that he would he would nod along at least when somebody comes and tells him that the filibuster has been abolished. Court packing is different. And I think, again, you would probably need the trigger of the court doing something that, you know, you could then react against. I think a lot, frankly, depends on Joe Biden's health, because there is no question that Kamala Harris is willing to do court packing. Biden has said he is not. But again, Biden... He was against the filibuster, too, taking away the filibuster, too, until recently. Yeah, I mean, Biden says things and then he, you know, he can be pressured. I mean, and that may only increase with age. So, but I think there's no question that if Harris takes the wheel at that point, court packing is very much on the table if the Democrats are still running the Senate. See, I just can't see how they don't do it because, I mean, think about this. The first excuse was going to be Merrick Garland's seat was stolen. Now it's going to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat was stolen. And even if Ginsburg had survived into the Biden administration, Let's say she retired healthy and Breyer retires and then they replace the two of them. They still haven't shifted the ideological direction of the court at all. They're just replacing old liberals with young liberals. Do you think the left would consider that a satisfactory outcome? No. And I look, there's no question if you look at the commentariat, right, the pundit class that progressives are pushing very hard already for court packing. Quite a lot of them are. So there will be immediate pressure to do it. At the same time, I still think, you know, particularly if if it's fairly close margin of Democratic control in the Senate in particular. I mean, look, I don't think Republicans should back down now because they're worried about that happening later. I think the court packing fight is a fight that Republicans can, should and will wage on the merits when it comes. I mean, I think it's important to raise the alarm now about the fact that you've got people in positions of significant power, including the vice presidential candidate of the Democrats, who think this is a good idea. But ultimately, you know, if it's coming, it's going to come. It's going to be principally driven by the internal dynamics of the Democrats. And it is a fight that I still think Republicans can win. Well, that's good to hear. I have an exit question for you, Dan. You know so much about this. What do you think about the question of term limits 
You know, when I think about, you know, well, FDR commented on the age of his Supreme Court justices, but when I look at this sort of hyper-political desire to, you know, hang on by your fingernails until a president of your political suasion comes in, it seems wrong. Should there be term limits? I mean, it is. I think it is unhealthy the extent to which the shape of the court is determined by lifespan of the justices and by the willingness of different justices to hang on or not hang on. And I think we are coming towards an eventual constitutional crisis that we have bizarrely not really faced, even though there were, you know, issues with it in the 70s and certainly in like the 1890s, where you have a justice who is just very obviously no longer capable of doing the job. I mean, if you go back to like John Marshall's day, there was one justice who I think was institutionalized for a couple of years, like he was just locked up in a nut house, uh, and they just kind of shrugged and went along with that in those days. But you know, I think that there is a problem there. But like many procedural fixes, I think it only makes sense to really do it. It's only feasible to do it when you can have real bipartisan agreement on something that will not give one side or the other a leg up. And it's very hard with the existing structure of the court to do that, to be able to say, you know, we're going to change the way that Supreme Court justices are selected or the way in which they are removed from the court. But I think if you were creating the court, knowing the politics of the world, if you were creating the court from scratch today, yeah, I think you would try to have more regularly staggered terms and limitations of some sort on exactly how long, you know, you would basically try to keep people from remaining on the court past the age of 80 or something. And doing so, I think would actually, depending on what the length of terms you set, would actually incentivize also the nomination of maybe older justices. You know, if you know that you can't sit on the court past the age of 80 and past 20 years, you know, why not pick somebody who's 60? Whereas you don't want to do that if you know that the amount of power a justice exercises depends on how young they are when they take the bench. Well, Dan, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for writing these great articles and digging into this history because this is one of the recurring problems in our politics that Danny and I bemoan, which is that people are so ignorant of our history and we're glad to have someone who isn't. (laughs) (laughs) You were fantastic. Thanks a ton, Dan. All right. Thanks for having me. So here's the question that we haven't touched yet, Danny, which is, is this going to help Donald Trump or help Joe Biden? Oh, that is a really hard question. That's really interesting. Uh, I actually don't think it is, but I'm, I want to hear your theory. Well, you know, I think that people don't think rationally about this stuff. And I didn't say this in our previous conversation about this, but I really feel like the hagiography around Ruth Bader Ginsburg you know, is a weird glorification of a Supreme Court justice, as wonderful as she may have been, has elevated her and her loss in the public mind. And so the sin of Donald Trump replacing this wonderful liberal may energize some people. On the other hand, the uh, horror that we laid out in our filibuster podcast of a packed court may energize some Republicans. So I actually don't know. You do? I think so. Yeah. Um, and I'll, get, I'll tell you what the hint is. The other day, Schumer and McConnell were both speaking on the Senate floor about this, and and so McConnell did his tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then made his defense of why this was the right thing to do. And then Schumer started to speak, and the news cut in because Joe Biden was giving a speech. And so they didn't actually cover Schumer's speech because Joe Biden, the presidential nominee of the party, and I was on Fox News at the time on the air, 
And we sat there for half an hour listening to Joe Biden speak, and he didn't mention the Supreme Court once. He didn't mention it in the speech. We had to cut away because the show was ending. So we were, they came to us for some commentary and they told, they broke in and told us the speech ended. He didn't mention the Supreme Court. So your if, view is? If, if this was a winning issue for Joe Biden, he'd be talking about it night and day. I feel, you know, like, he, he, I feel he, like you can never yeah. judge what Joe Biden is talking about and what actually well, matters. Maybe he, maybe he didn't remember. But, you know, the, I, I mean, but here's the thing. It helped. This was an issue that helped Donald Trump enormously in 2016. There are a lot of reluctant Trump voters. And I was a reluctant Trump voter in 2016 who voted for him precisely because of the Supreme Court. The exit polls show that Trump won People who said the Supreme Court was the most important issue by 15 points, 56 to 41 over Clinton. And 26 percent of Trump voters in 2016 said this was the most important issue for them. Only 18 of Hillary Clinton's voters said that. So this is a real the Supreme there's, there's Court. There's no polling on that now about what. There's not yet. I'm sure there will be soon. But if you think about it, Trump's success in appointing justices sort of made this less of a prominent issue because he saved the conservative majority on the court. He put two justices on there. We now have a five to four conservative majority. Scalia's seat was saved. We got uh, Kavanaugh on there. We he made progress. He put 200 judges on the federal court and district courts and circuit courts of appeal. And so he's done much of what people asked him to do. And so this was not a salient issue. It is now. Now the idea, if you, you, want to, you want to energize those swing voters, those reluctant Trump voters who are only supporting him because of the Supreme Court, the idea that the Democrats will win and pack the Supreme Court with liberal justices, talk about a motivating issue, and it cuts our way. Our voters care more about this than Biden's voters do. And they will crucify any senator who doesn't back President Trump and vote to put a conservative on the court. Poor Susan Collins, who's caught between a, in a whipsaw in a hard place, because yeah. the, the sort of the moderate liberal Republicans or, or Democrats who, who sort of supported her, they'll crucify her if she does vote for the nominee. But the Trump base, who she can't win without... Uh, will crucify her if she doesn't. So yeah. she's, uh, I think this is, a, this is this hard is, being a moderate, a moderate Republican woman coming from yeah. Maine. Of course, yet more affirmation that this is not a country anymore in which moderates can prosper. You you got to be out there on the fringes for people to, to jump up and down and get excited. That's that's a big shame. Well, we've got about a month and a half left in which we can see what happens and what people care about. So not that long to wait. Well, stay tuned. And next week, we've got real, we're going back to foreign policy. We've got the ambassadors of Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain. We've got two podcasts with three ambassadors talking about the historic Middle East deal. You will not want to miss that. Take care. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.